This morning we're in 1 Timothy, no, we're in 2 Timothy, chapter 3, the whole thing, 17 verses. 2 Timothy, chapter 3. Hear then the word of God. Paul writes and he says, understand this, in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak Women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. Always learning and never being able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Jannes and Jamres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far for their folly will be plain to all as was that of those two men. You, however have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love and my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me in Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, with persecutions that I endured and yet from them, from them all the Lord has rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Well, evil people with and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and what you have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you have been equated with the sacred scriptures, the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All the scriptures are God-breathed. They're breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Pray with me. Father in heaven, your word is living and true. It is right and it's powerful. I pray, Father, this morning that as we come to your word, that we would come to you, we would sit at your feet, we would open our hearts and our minds that you might speak into our lives and capture us, capture our hearts and our minds for the truth, that you might draw us deeper in love with you, deeper in our passion for knowing you and loving you and serving you and walking with you. Father, these things we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're talking about relativism this morning, and some of you may hear that word and say, what exactly is that? I know what something is, to be relative to something else, but relativism, when you add ISM to something and you make it a way of thinking. Individual, being an individual is great. Individualism is not so great. A way of thinking that isolates you from community. 
You know, material things are, are fine. They're good. God has made them. He said they're very good. But materialism, a way of thinking that, that captures us toward uh, a neglect of the spiritual is not a good thing. Relativism. Relativism is a, is a worldview that says that truth and moral values are not universal. They're not absolute. Nothing outside of us, there's nothing outside of us to tell us what is true. There's no standard out here that will dictate to us what is true. And because there's nothing outside of us, no absolute standard telling us what the truth is, truth is whatever you think it is. It will differ from person to person. It will differ from culture to culture. It will differ from time to time, from the 1950s to the 20-somethings, the 2010s. It differs across time and place and person to person as you go around the room. It changes with popular opinion, with the fads. If there's no objective and absolute truth outside of us telling us all the same thing, telling us all what truth is, then truth comes from inside. There's no definite right and wrong. There's no definite good and evil. There's no certainty about moral values. What is true? And we need to understand that in the world and outside these doors, that's normal. Right? That's where they live. If you reject God, if you don't believe in the Scripture, if you don't believe in the Bible, if you don't have that standard then certainly this is where we will live. There's no source of truth without God's Word illuminating the world, defining reality, giving shape and structure to moral values. Without God's Word speaking into this, people will believe anything and everything. And they do. Go walk the mall and talk to different people. They believe anything and they believe everything. They make up their own ideas about what is right and what is wrong. And they do what they want to do. And that's what's right. And what they don't want to do or what they don't want other people doing, that's what's wrong. We see it every day. Stephen Iyer, it's there in your bulletin under the first point. In speaking about this, he says, Relativism is a pragmatic, worldly faith that provides the power to reshape ourselves and our environment to fit our desires. What does that mean? He says we make it up as we go along. We shape our view of everything. We shape, we have the power within us, the power of truth and defining reality is inside of us, and we basically define things the way we like them. We make it up as we go along. Truth is whatever I want it to to be. God says it like this in Isaiah 65, verse 2. It's also there in your bulletin. God says, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good. What's the not good way, Father? What is the way that that is not good to walk in? He says, following their own devices. Doing your own thing. Making up as you go along. Departing from God and His Word and doing as we see fit. So with relativism, we're basically left making up our own truth, determining what truth is for ourselves, deciding for ourselves what is right and good, what is wrong, what is evil, or deciding that there is no such thing. 
which is not an unpopular view these days, that there's no such thing as good and evil. If there's no God, if the world is not created, if it's, we're all just a ch- uh, uh, the, the, the product of chance and time and, and forces that, that, that are automatic and at work, there's no external purpose or power. There's the whole concepts of right and wrong, good and evil are things we just made up. For many, even the idea of God is simply something that we arrive at ourselves, simply a reflection of ourselves. God is what I think that He should be. You know, I hear people say, and I've been in both college ministry and a number of kinds of ministries in my life, and talked to a lot of people, I've done beach evangelism projects, and uh, all kinds of ways that you've been out there and have these conversations, and people will tell you all the time, I'll have conversations, you try to tell them something, and they'll say, well, my God's not like that. Oh. Okay, we get on in the conversation, later on they say, no, my God would never do that. Oh, well, where did you get your God? What, what, what God is this that you are, that is your God, that wouldn't think that way, wouldn't do that kind of thing, wouldn't be like that, and push comes to shove, it's not the God of the Bible. In fact, it's not the God of any external source, it's the God they think about what God would do. Well, what would God do? Well, what I think God ought to be doing. You know, what, what would God, what would his values be? Well, certainly, if I think something is bad, God must think it's bad. If I think it's terrible, then God certainly must share my view. If I think something is okay, well, of course God is all right with that. Believe it or not, that's the way most people, you step outside the doors, most people come to their view of God. He is who I think he should be. Right? God is whatever I choose to think He is. And it's not surprising then that God is remarkably like me. But the thing is, if this thinking infects the church, a subtle drift, a subtle unbelief that follows along with the shifting values of the culture. See, the thing with the church... The problem over the centuries even is as the culture goes, the church always wants to stay ahead of the culture. You know, we always want to stand a a foot above on the high moral ground. But the problem is, is, as culture takes a dip, the church, instead of following hard on with the word of God and the truth of God and, and the values and standards here, we tend to, we tend to do this thing where we, we stay a step ahead, you know, but, but the truth is, There is a drift and a subtleness in the way that we follow this shifting culture. And so there's a lot of confusion. There's confusion, particularly among our young people. But it's everywhere in the life of the church in America as we wrestle with the shifting culture. And you you know it's shifting. You go to America 50 years ago and America today, and the, the change is so radically shocking about, about what? What people thought was right and good 50 years ago and what was wrong. And what would be absolutely evil today, some of those things that would have been thought evil, even by the secular culture 50 years ago, today, people look at those very same things and say they're they're good. They're not only good, they're desirable. And we're practicing them. And we will practice them. Right? How it changed, how the culture, what is right and wrong, changes over time, person to person. so much confusion we tend to as a church then to match and to follow the culture and to wrestle with as their divorce rates go and as they handle things and then the church tries to stay a step ahead but we follow and the issues of abortion and 
share often in the obsession with self-indulgence, and particularly in the area of sexuality, there's a lot of confusion. It's become so casual today, the whole thing. You watch some of these, well, you watch everything. You almost have to not watch anything to avoid the casualness with which all these things are taken. Friends with Benefits, the name of a movie that you can't help seeing that the that's had these these concepts of casualness about something that we know is anything but casual. And so practice follows, as goes the thinking on these values, a practice like living together before marriage, which 50 years ago, even a secular culture would not have tolerated for an instant today as normal practice. Outside the church and in the culture, it becomes more and more normal practice. Well, why? Because when you're, you're thinking about Sexuality is so casual, living together is, is no big deal. The whole issue of homosexuality and marriage and the whole debate that is happening out there in terms of whether these, and, and to be honest, the church begins to waffle on these issues about which the scripture seems so very clear. But the more pressure that the culture puts on us, the more names that it calls us, you know, you're a you're a phobe, right? You're afraid. You're a homophobe or you're some kind of phobe. You're afraid. You're a bigot. You're narrow-minded. You're this. You're that. And it becomes harder and harder the more names they call and the pressure they put and the ways they want to punish us for having values that are different than theirs. And it becomes harder and harder to stay in the line, to hold the ground, and to say, we don't get to make it up as we go along. The standard stands outside of us. What we experience in our culture there in your bulletin under the first point, Judges 21-25, the very last two sentences of the book of Judges when it says there in, in those days there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Right? That sums up relativism in a heartbeat. When there's no king, when there's no authority, when there's no absolute truth, there's no absolute word to us about what is true or not. When there's no king, everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And that's relativism in a nutshell. That is Americanism in a nutshell. Right? It's the American way of life. To a lot of people, that sounds fantastic. Right? No king to tell us what to do and get to do what I want, what is right in my own eyes, to live my own life, to do, live my own way, to my fullest pleasure. In fact, in a culture like that, in a culture like ours, where everyone does what is right in their own eyes, the only thing that is wrong is when someone says that something is wrong. Right? The only evil in our society is to violate the dictum of tolerance, which you redefine to mean you cannot say that something is wrong. You cannot call something evil. So Isaiah 5 there, under your first point, Isaiah, woe, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Right? That's where we go. Something that is, that is evil by God's standard or even evil 50 years ago in America, that we begin to call it good. And when you begin to call that good, then what was good now becomes evil. If we, if we promote uh, abstinence, we promote different values about sexuality. And those kind of things almost become evil. You're not even allowed to teach them in our school as an option. You know, or you're, you have to fight the battle to even say those things. 
This is not freedom. The Bible says this is not freedom. It's rebellion. God says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Woe to those who are exchanging darkness for light and light for darkness. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Right? Woe to those who make it up as they go along. Woe to those who make up their own truth or their own morality. It's not freedom, he says. It's rebellion. And that kind of rebellion, he says, it doesn't hurt God. When we, when we go against what is true and we do what we want to do, he says, it, when we do this, it's woe to us. It doesn't hurt God. He's not put off. He's not hurt by our rebellion. It hurts us. Calling evil good and doing it wounds and hurts us. And so we have this passage this morning, all that coming in. I believe what we have in this whole passage in 2 Timothy 3 is a passage that describes this drifting in unbelief of relativism growing in the life of a community and of a church. Right? And the first thing that we see, he says, you understand this in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. The first thing I want you to, to understand is that when he says the last days, he's not talking about the future. That Paul is talking about the present. That the last days is a period of time inaugurated by Jesus when he came. That when Jesus came, the last days started. We're told that in the last days, God will pour out his spirit on his people. You know, and that happened. That's what happened at Pentecost. And, and the scriptures that speak to that say that's what happened. The last days came. The Spirit was poured out. We entered into this. It becomes clear in this text because when you read it, Paul is writing to Timothy about his current situation and his ministry and how he's supposed to deal with it. Paul is getting direction on how to handle this slide. It's not the future. And so what does the slide look like? He gives us verses 2 to 4, doesn't he? He says, for people in the last days and the time that you and I live and that they lived in even then, people will be lovers of self and lovers of money and proud and arrogant and abusive and the list goes on. He describes this very moral slide that we're talking about. You could read that and you would think, you can just look across the American landscape and think of different ways or sometimes you can look at our own lives. Look across the landscape and see some of these things. It describes people who are doing what is right in their own eyes. It's interesting that coming out of the gate, the first thing is lovers of self. And everything flows from that. right? And it ends with lovers of self rather than, lovers of pleasure rather than. In fact, love is in this whole thing. There are three verses here that they break up, giving us this litany of stuff. And love appears in all three verses. What we love is, it bookends it, right? In verse 2, he says that we're lovers of self, and so we're lovers of money. In verse 3, he, he ends saying we're not loving what is good. And what is that? In verse 4, he ends it with saying we're lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. We start out being lovers of self, and at the end, not lovers of God the way that we are called to be the way that we need to be, the way that we want to be. And so there's this misdirected love that saturates this whole passage. What you love, what you want, what you adore, what you appreciate, what you value. 
What we do is we value self, and so we value money and pleasure, and, and, and it end up not valuing what's good and loving God the way that we should. They, they have replaced God in our affections, in our thinking, in our loving. Right? When we love self, we do what is right in our own eyes. When we love God, we live under His Word, and we live under His way. Now, who are these people? You read this list and you're, you know, the temptation is to read this list and think, you know, we're tempted to think this is the very worst elements of our society. You know, that's a horrible list. You read down that list and you think, I don't know, I'm thinking of the penitentiary. I'm thinking of, you know, the worst parts of town or something. You know, I'm, you know who are these people? They're terrible. Well, it's interesting to me that except for daily grace, I believe that this passage would describe you and me. In fact, he says it describes religious people, right? In verse 5, he says, the last thing he says about them is this, having the appearance of godliness, but they're denying its power. That's a summary statement of this whole passage. These people, who they are, they're a people that have a form of godliness, but the problem is when a push comes to shove down in their lives where the rubber meets the road, there's no power of godliness. Right? These are people who think of themselves as spiritual. They have a form of religion, but there's no spiritual power in their religion. There's not a, there's not a power of godliness. There's not a power of Christ-likeness. There's not, a, there's not a life changing and molding to who God is and according to His Word. They have a new relative godliness, it appears, right? One that must be compatible with the current culture and trends. See, that's the danger. The godliness follows the pattern of the culture, right? And so they have, these guys have a new form of godliness that matches the trends, right? It's an updated form of godliness where loving self and loving money and loving pleasure more than we love God is acceptable. Where actual self-control and obedience and godliness is optional. Where God-centeredness and Christ-likeness and a, and a passionate love for God and His Word, is the inner, the true inner aspects of Christianity are optional. Now, how do we get here? It's interesting. You ask that question, how do these guys get here? How do professedly Christian or religious people become these people who have a form of godliness but are denying its power? Their lives don't reflect it. Well, I believe he tells us in verse 7. He says, we've got a group of people who are always learning. But they're never able to quite arrive at a knowledge of the truth. And of course, a knowledge of the truth is an experience of the truth in our lives. We don't arrive at a knowledge of the truth until we become it, until we are living it, until we embody it. You know, we can know it up here, but we have not arrived at a knowledge of the truth until until it it has shaped our lives, until we become it and we choose and we live and we worship and we make our moral choices. 
until it changes us. You know, I read that description of religious people that deny the power of genuine Christianity. And I don't know about you, every time I read that, it shakes me. It makes me pray, and that, which is what you ought to do when you read the Scripture, isn't it? When we read the Scripture, we read these things, and what it ought to do is, is make us people of prayer. How can we respond to this any other way than to say, oh my God, I want to know the power of godliness. Oh my God, do not let me be on that list of folks who have a form, an outward form, or pattern, or you know, association with all things religious, but don't know the power of your spirit, your, of godliness in the inner life that is, that is truly Christian. You know, Paul makes that very prayer. Philippians 3, chapter, chapter 3, verse 10 is there in your second point in your outline. Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Right? I want to know him. You want to know the power, right? There's knowing Him, and that's what He says. You don't want to be always learning, always knowing, but not experiencing the power of a, of a new life in Christ. This is the heartbeat of Christianity. This is what beats off of every page as you read Jesus in the Gospels and Paul, and as it beats through this thing, is this... Christianity is not a matter of eating and drinking and talking and this. It's a matter of power in the, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Right? It's, it's something real and vital and internal. And so Paul speaks directly to Timothy and to the church. And he says, how very different, right? Verse 10, you, however, have followed my teaching. The however says, but you're different. Right? Why? Because you have followed my teaching. They're like the early Christians. Acts chapter 2, we looked at a couple of weeks ago. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. It marked them. It marked them as God's people in the earliest church. And Paul says it's what marks you. You are, however, um, you are following the apostles' teaching. You are devoted to the apostles' teaching. You are lovers of the word of God. And I'm going to skip what he says in between. Let me just say this. I always find myself here. Let me just say the next part. He starts talking about his own experience, his own life. And it's a little odd. He says, you've been, you know, following my teaching. But then he goes on and say, and you've been following my conduct and my aim in life and my faith and my patience and my love. And he says, and you've seen my suffering and you've seen my persecution and you've seen God deliver me from it all. You've seen patience and you've seen steadfastness. Paul is not being proud. Paul is not saying, look at me. What Paul is doing is he is testifying to the power of Christ in his life. He's saying, look, what God does, right? God is real and active and powerful in the lives of his people. And so Paul points and he says, you know me. I'm not talking out here. You know my life what I've suffered and where I've been. You know the aim of my whole life, my conduct and my, what I believe you've seen it. I'm talking about something I know a little bit about. And so he leads them back into the scripture, doesn't he? He says, 
You know, you, you continue in what you've learned. You continue in what you firmly believed. You, the scriptures that you have learned from childhood, they make you wise for salvation. And the same scripture that makes you wise for salvation, in it God speaks of the, an unchanging moral fabric to the universe, a, a fabric that is not random and it's not arbitrary and it isn't just out there, but is actually a reflection of the God who made it. There's a moral fabric, there's a moral structure, and it's, it's built in by, because it reflects the creator who made it. And it's absolute, and it's right, and it's true, and it's evil, and it's good because of who God is, who made us. And so he says this scripture, these sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation, but they're, they're in verse 16, the scripture is breathed out by God, which means it, it came from his mouth. That's the only way... The main thing that is saying, Scripture is God breathed. That means it came out of His mouth. It came from Him. It is His. Its origin is in the Lord, the Creator Himself. God spoke. That's what He's saying. All Scripture, God spoke it. God gave it to us. And He says, and therefore, it's profitable. It's useful. It's helpful. says it's helpful. Sorry, I lost my place in my notes. I'm skipping a bunch here to get to the end. He says it's useful for two things, right? He says it is useful for correcting wrong thinking and wrong living. Those are the two correcting and reproof. It's correcting wrong thinking and wrong living. And it's useful for teaching and training the truth and for training in righteousness, right living, right thinking, right living. Corrects the wrong and it is useful for the right. And he says that the man or woman can be equipped and empowered for every good work. That is, for a life of godliness. What am I saying in all of this is Paul takes it around. The antidote to relativism, the antidote to this moral slide, the antidote to not be ever learning but never coming to that knowledge, the antidote to having a form of godliness but not experiencing the power of it is a love and a saturation in the word of God. And the God of the word. Right? He takes us back to the scripture. And it's a lost art, isn't it? For many of us. To be lovers of the word of God. To have it saturating our thinking. To to be daily in a pattern of devotion to God's word. You know, what does it mean to be a devotee to the apostles' teaching? A lover of the word of God. And this is where he brings us. He says... The scripture, God has spoken, and we cannot afford not to hear him. God has spoken, and he continues to speak if we will come to him in his word. And it's important we come to him in his word, and he speaks it into our lives with power. And he shapes our thinking, and he corrects our living, and he pushes us in the paths of righteousness. But it is a daily encounter with God and His Word. We cannot live by bread alone. We cannot live by material nourishment alone. But He says we, we live by every word of God. You want to know, like Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection. And Paul says, as he is saying here, if you want to know the power of godliness, 
says, don't live on bread alone. Live by every word that has come out of the mouth of God. Love your Bible. Love the God of the Bible and come to Him. One, one application, let me say, as we do this, is you'll notice in the announcement there's a Bible dig-in in the middle of October. You know, we have small groups to get you into the Scripture. We have Sunday schools that are teaching you Galatians and Zechariah and Romans that get you into the Scripture. We encourage you and teach you in your personal study. We do the preaching of God's Word. But I call you to a Bible dig-in. If you are able to pull it off, it's a Friday night and a Saturday morning. It ends up being five or six hours. It's a chance to go deeper into God's Word. We'll use a manuscript study. It involves colored pencils. I'll give some more description as we go forward. But it's an intensive time to, to dig into God's Word. But the other thing that it will do for you is if you struggle to study God's Word on your own, is that it will help to retool you and hopefully light that passion for you to love and to study and to be in God's Word on your own. Paul closes, in, well, he doesn't close, but he moves to the end of his letter in chapter 4. In the first verses there, I mean, it is, Paul comes with all the force of his apostleship, apostleship and, he, and he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and by his kingdom. And you read that and you're almost on the edge of your seat. What, Paul? What is he going to say? I charge you. By Jesus Christ and His kingdom and His coming and, and everything, as you can just put in there, and everything holy and powerful, He says, I charge you, preach the word. And as an elder and as a pastor, I would turn that around and say, with all whatever power that is vested in me as an elder, as a pastor, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and by His kingdom, my friends, I charge you, receive God's word. Hear it. Love it. Read it. Chew on it. Pray down the power of the Holy Spirit to convert it into godliness. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word which is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword that pierces soul and body, bone and spirit. You reveal the hearts of your people, our thoughts and our intentions, and here, Father, do that work that only you can do, and cultivate a genuine godliness in the deepest places of our hearts. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for your spirit, and we thank you that you are a God who speaks, and you don't leave us to our own devices, but you lead us in the paths of righteousness for your own name's sake. So for your glory, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.